Boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, live actors from around the world, good day to you. Today I have an honor to talk to Dr. Andrew Newberg, who has dedicated many years of his life to studies of the brain and also to question how rituals, practices, yogas, meditations, just everything spiritual that we can do influences our brain. Are there similarities? Can enlightenment be traced? Can you see how insights affect your brain? Dr. Andrew Newberg is the author of 10 best-selling books and he has a lot to share just after intro. Patterns of happiness are frameworks that always work. They are tools and practices that will bring permanent change to your life for better. We're not looking for temporary solutions. We change and transform. We practice what we preach and we're gonna share it with you here. Be careful because you can become seriously happier today. Good day to you. Good day to you. It's really an honor for me to have you with us today. What you do, I find revolutionary in several ways. First of all, because it basically unites different religions right. in the sense that no religion is better than the other one, right. which is actually amazing. I think nobody else managed to do that. There will be more peace in the world. I hope so. <laughs> and another thing, I'm not really sure whether you continue doing this work, but one of the things I've read in your book is that even some animals can have insights or maybe small enlightenments. It makes this world even deeper because uh, those right. little beings that cannot talk to us, they, they actually have something happening in them. So that's, thank that's you for true. that. Thank oh, you my for pleasure. One first question. Yeah. Um, I know that you're a doctor and a professor, right? so right. you have these two titles. Can you please explain what you do as a doctor and what you do as a professor? Well, you know, as a doctor, I guess um, the main thing that I do is, um, is research and also my work with patients. Um, so, so, you know, we'll have patients who come in who have various issues and problems, and I see them as a medical doctor. And then, of course, as a medical doctor, I also do a lot of research, which leads to the study of the various religious and spiritual practices and experiences that people have. Um, we also do a variety of other studies uh, as in, in my role here in integrative medicine. So we also focus on things like diet and nutrition. Um, we, we look at um, how different supplements and antioxidants and anti-inflammatants help people with different disorders. Uh, so all of that kind of comes under the rubric of, of being an MD, a medical doctor. Uh, as far as being a professor goes, um, that usually deals a little bit more with teaching, I guess. Um, and I do teach uh, uh, students in a variety of capacities, all the way from those who are in college and even high school, um, all the way up through uh, medical school and, and medical residents, people who are already doctors, but they're still in training and teaching them about, about the brain, about uh, neuroimaging, and uh, and to a large extent about you know things like 
spirituality and religion in the context of human health and well-being and, and how that can be incorporated into a person's practice and what kinds of questions should be asked, those kinds of things. But it's, it's more it's more teaching oriented, I guess, as a professor. Could you say that you are sort of preacher of uh, neurotheology? <laughs> I don't know if I would use the word preacher, but yes, definitely, uh, you know, uh, neurotheology is, is um, something I'm very passionate about. I love to talk about I uh, love to teach people about, and um, and to that extent, uh, yes, so, you know, I'm I'm always a, a huge advocate for it, and and hope that it is something that, uh, as you were saying in the introduction, you know, is something that we can can turn to as a way of helping us to understand religions in general, um, help people to perhaps be more understanding and more compassionate of those people who who think differently than them. And, and also find ways of kind of linking what we can know scientifically with what we can know spiritually in an endeavor to ultimately advance who we are as human beings and, and really help the human species, the, all of us, uh, be a little bit better uh, as individuals and help to take care of each other, uh, help to take care of ourselves, help to take care of the world. In your book and also on some interviews that I've listened of yours, you share about this great doubt that you experienced and that actually made you look deeper into these aspects of what enlightenment is. What do you actually do these days? Maybe you have a certain practice of yours, like reflection, or maybe you decided to actually put other practices into your life as well. Can you please share what you do? Yeah, you know, a lot of this really derived from just my own searching for answers to questions to me the you know the big questions about the nature of reality and and why people believe different things and so you know I, to me even when i was a kid i sort of felt like well if there's a reality then we why are we all coming to different conclusions and so i set off trying to think about it and in many ways it was uh, a, a self-reflection um I, I sometimes refer to it as kind of a, a philosophical meditation it was a way of just kind of focusing on what we could know, focusing on different ideas, different perspectives, different beliefs, uh, different traditions, and and kind of sorting through them, sifting through them to try to understand which ones really had, um, which, which could really say something very definitive. And um, you mentioned this whole uh, process of doubt. Uh, the way I, I started to approach it was that if there was anything that I was just not completely certain of, it didn't mean it was wrong. It just meant I wasn't sure. And I kind of put it over into this realm of doubt, so to speak, that I would just kind of hold on to it and, and see, you know, and keep going. And as I, I went through this process, this is kind of now around when I was uh, in college and, and starting into medical school and so forth. I began to really challenge myself in terms of how to how, where my thoughts come from, uh, where do my ideas and beliefs come from. And um, as I kept kind of pursuing this, more and more went into this realm of doubt. It, it seemed like I, there was less and less I could be certain about. And eventually, uh, it was actually around the time that I was getting ready to go to medical school. And I thought, well, before I go, I have to figure this all out. And um, and so I spent a whole summer really just kind of in a lot of deep reflection and, and contemplation, a uh, very meditative type of process. Uh, not, a, you know, as, as you were kind of alluding to, it's not a, a formal practice. I don't, I wouldn't say that I follow Buddhist principles or, or Hindu or whatever, but it's it just sort of my own, my own thing. And as I, as I really got into that process, 
um, I eventually had this experience that I only know to describe as sort of an infinite doubt, um, that it was just that everything was was unknowable. And um, as my one of my colleagues said to me that, you know, here I was trying to find answers and I hit this experience of infinite doubt. And he said, that must have been the worst experience you could ever have had. And I thought about that for a moment. I said, well, no, actually, it was just the opposite. It was the most um, the most incredible experience that I really felt. It was very powerful. Uh, it felt very calming. And, uh, and, and in many ways, everything became one. I mean, everything was just kind of thrust into this uh, infinite doubt. And, um, and, and what it, I think it did for me in, on one level was give me a, a kind of experience that en- encouraged me to begin to um, look into mystical and spiritual experiences even more, um, ha- having an experience that I couldn't quite understand or describe. And, uh, and see where the similarities and the differences were. But it also took away a lot of that angst and a lot of that, the, the, the need to know. It, it, it sort of allowed me to let go of that whole process and, but continue to explore it at the same time. And, uh, and so for me, the whole field of neurotheology kind of uh, in many ways arose out of that, this idea of kind of, you know, how do we look at things analytically and scientifically but what do we do when we have these kinds of spiritual feelings, um, trying to figure out a way of bringing them together? And uh, as I did that, uh, you know, then I became very fortunate that when I was in medical school, I could continue the work both in terms of what was going on in my own mind, but then beginning to use brain imaging and, and start to look at people doing these kinds of practices and having these kinds of experiences. And that from there developed a lot of, of hopefully where, you know, neurotheology is at the moment. And, and uh, hopefully there's a, a long, long way to go. I really resonated with uh, this part of your book where you described this infinite doubt. That's not something that I experienced in particular about the do- doubt thing. But I remember one weekend in my life when I really started questioning everything I had. And I felt that nothing made sense. Nothing I did actually brought any results. So I was so depressed that at a certain moment, I actually felt relieved. I don't know how to express this, but I went deeper and deeper into this weekend depression. And then at a certain moment, it felt that I could no longer go any deeper in that state. and. There was actually no way but just to go somewhere upwards. And I thought, okay, so maybe it is as it is. That's actually another way to put um, what you do, is that nobody actually has the right to say that this is the only truth. No religion has the right to the truth. And actually there are like infinite ways to get to this enlightenment, to this different space of consciousness. Well, absolutely. And, and as you said, I mean, we, you know, part of what's in, you know, one of the more recent books that, that I wrote, uh, How Enlightenment Changes Your Brain, the results of a survey that we ran where we got a couple thousand people describing their spiritual experiences. And uh, as you mentioned, I mean, there were many that were somewhat similar to what you just talked about, you know, the sort of the hitting rock bottom, so to speak, and, and whether that was out of hitting rock bottom because of health issues, because of addictions, just because of total confusion, um, you know, depression, whatever it was, that once that bottom is hit, then there's this kind of, there's the notion that now you are, you know, you're moving up 
Um, and and there's kind of this reflexive response within the individual that becomes very, very positive and sometimes even, you know, kind of an ecstatic type of experience. And uh, and that is that is that is a pathway. And as you said, I mean, there is definitely no one pathway that seems to work. And, and for those individuals who have come from uh, traditions that they feel very strongly about Catholicism, uh, uh, Russian Orthodox, you know, whatever, those can be profound pathways. And, and certainly those are pathways that uh, people have gone down over the last hundreds, if not thousands of years. And, uh, and they can be very powerful for people as well and can connect them to their sense of spirituality, their sense of God, if that's, you know, relevant to them. And, and even for people who aren't religious, um, you know, they're, you know, part of what we talk a lot about in the context of, of people who are agnostic or atheist. Uh, is the notion that people are still striving for a feeling of connection, a feeling of of wanting to belong, a feeling of being part of the universe, uh, being part of some greater interconnected thing of the universe. Um, some people find spirituality through creativity, through music, through art, um, through exercise even. Um, you know, so there are a lot of different pathways that people can turn to that um, that can help to kind of awaken them and enlighten them into a new way of thinking about themselves and a new way of thinking about the world around them and how they interact with that world. You said that you also work with people that have uh, different diseases. Um, I wanted to ask you, maybe it's a weird question, but maybe it's not such a weird question. <laughs> Are there any kinds of diseases that under certain circumstances or when you scan the brains of those people actually look um, similar to experience from what you saw with people that uh, work with meditation i mean like maybe schizophrenia is not actually such a bad thing if you look at the brain yeah it, it's a really good point um and a very important question it's part of of what we talk about in neurotheology the idea that um uh, you know, how do we look at what happens when the brain is not functioning properly? There's some sort of disorder. And there are, there are not a huge number of studies, but there are a growing number of studies that have looked at this in different kinds of ways. So, for example, uh, there was a very interesting uh, couple of studies that looked at people who had injury to their brain. And they found that when people had injuries to the parietal lobe, which is located in the back of the brain, um, that those individuals were more likely to have feelings of self-transcendence and some type of sort of spiritual feeling. And that's interesting because in our brain studies, my, our brain scan studies, we found that when people are meditating or praying and have this deep spiritual experience where they kind of lose their sense of self, that they have decreases of activity in this parietal lobe. The parietal lobe normally helps us to create our sense of self and to establish where we are in the world. So we had always hypothesized that if that area starts to quiet down, that you begin to lose your sense of self, you begin to lose the boundaries between objects in the world, and you have that feeling of oneness or connectedness. So if you already have an injury in that area, which is what some of these studies have shown, that helps to facilitate that kind of an experience. And in and of itself, that to me is very interesting. Uh, another uh, study was looking at patients who have a neurodegenerative disease, Parkinson's disease. And they found something very interesting that when people, Parkinson's disease is, um, you know, it, it affects the dopamine system in the brain and it can affect both sides or sometimes it can affect one side more than the other. And what they found was is that when it affected one side more than the other, um, that that sometimes was associated with a loss 
of religious beliefs and experiences. And there's been some evidence to suggest that dopamine is part of the process that helps people to engage their religious and spiritual selves. So the fact that as dopamine is reduced, and particularly on one side or the other, that there could be changes in how a person looks at their religious and spiritual selves. So, you know, there are some studies that are starting to look at this and starting to look at different disorders. And and you mentioned schizophrenia. I mean, obviously there's, you know, the, the well-known cases that people always think about, the person who says they're Jesus Christ um, and, uh, and, and truly believes that they're Jesus or the Messiah or something like that. Uh, and, um, you know, what do we do with that? And we know that, that schizophrenia is associated with different changes in the brain, again, particularly the dopamine areas. All of that kind of helps us to understand what this relationship is between the brain and these different uh, spiritual feelings. In terms of another part of that question, which you were kind of alluding to, is what's normal? You know, what, what, what's okay to be? You know, to some extent, it has less to do with what's going on in the brain and more to do with how the person just functions in the world. So if you uh, have deep spiritual experiences and feelings, um, that can be wonderful. I mean, that can make people feel great. That can really help people. Um, it can make people adapt better in society. Uh, on the other hand, if you have true schizophrenia and you're not able to hold a job and you're not able to have relationships and you have hallucinations that you can't control, then most likely that is maladaptive and, and doesn't, you know, isn't helpful. But um, but certainly, you know, people have thought about the relationship between a variety of different disorders, particularly brain disorders, and um, and how they are related to these spiritual experiences. And it's a, it's a piece of the puzzle. You know, it's telling us something about what's going on in the brain and how whatever's going on in the brain is associated with these kinds of experiences. There are some enlightened teachers that uh, actually have something called a satsang when people get with them in the same room. I wanted to ask you also about this. Have you made any experiments in those kinds of situations? For example, like the person who is actually being in being scanned is not doing anything in particular, but there is someone who is actually called enlightenment, for example, and basically, as far as I understand, under such circumstances, this enlightened person sort of passes this kind of state to this person. Mm. I was wondering whether you have somehow researched this and how it is happening to the brain. How is it possible that two people start to resonate the same way, even one of them wasn't doing anything in particular. Well, so we've done a little bit of research in that area, and we are certainly hoping to do more. I'm hoping that we'll be able to do a larger study to be able to explore that. Um, at one point, we were given an opportunity to do something similar to what you're talking about, uh, which is to study the effect of a particular practice that was called the oneness blessing. Um, where people believe that they could kind of transmit this blessing to other individuals. And so we scanned the, the receiver who didn't know uh, if the, the blessing was being given to them or not. Now, we never published this data because we just never got enough individuals um, through it. But, um, but what, was, what was interesting about it was that uh, uh, we actually only were able to get four individuals to, to do the study. There were two sessions, one where they were receiving the blessing, one where they were not. They, they got it half right, um, and so, which is basically a flip of a coin, you know, because they either had one or the other and, and they were at 50%. So four people does not really prove anything very definitively. So, uh, but we didn't see any 
clear evidence that you know all of them felt that that difference. On the other hand, when we looked in the brain itself, there were a couple of small areas that were different in all four people when the blessing was give, being given versus when it was not. You know, when you talk about a couple of areas, it's hard to know whether or not that just happens to be kind of a random result or was that something really there? And some people felt it, some people didn't. That's why I think ultimately we need to do more studies to be able to look at that. Um, you know, from the perspective of neurotheology, one of the things that I've always argued is that that we need to be open to a, a variety of different possibilities and we need to work towards developing approaches to measuring phenomenon that are difficult to measure. And so, you know, a, a brain scan may not be the best way to measure these kinds of things. Maybe there are other approaches. Maybe we need to be looking at electrical changes or magnetic fields or or something different. You know, we want to always do good science, but uh, but we also, you know, science continues to advance and we we never knew about x-rays until we developed an x-ray detector. And, and that now that we have that, we know what x-rays are. It's possible that there are some other waveforms or other, you know, energy forms that um, that we, we can't detect right now. Sure, that's a possibility and we should be open to that. I wanted to share with you, I had a chance to meet some ex-KGB people who actually made a kind of a course dedicated I'm, I'm, I'm sure you know something called distance viewing in yes. uh, Utah. So it's similar, but it's different still. So right. what, what those guys uh, made in KGB, they experimented with making poems, like uh, writing poems dedicated to someone. They put this person, this someone in a different part of the city, and the group of eight people, well, they were writing poems dedicated to this person. The, there was a doctor who was uh, taking different parameters from blood pressure to, I, I mean, everything they could do in the 80s. He actually noticed that there were significant changes when those people made those uh, poems and they were reading them aloud. Well, yeah, <laughs> similar kind of thing. I mean, I, I think part of what we, we need to do is is try to understand, uh, one, whether such phenomenon are real. Um, and there, as you said, I mean, there are a lot of different studies that are out there. Uh, people have done a, a large number of studies trying to assess whether consciousness can affect uh, random number generators and you know other other objects at a distance in one way or another, and including human beings. And the the data seems to suggest that it can happen. Um, the effects tend to be small, so you know it, that's also part of the issue, which is that even if we can do this, the effects themselves may be very small and difficult to actually feel. Uh, on the other hand, even if they're very small effects that's very paradigm shifting in terms of how we understand consciousness and what it can do and and whether or not our minds or our brains can somehow affect objects remotely and uh, and so yeah you know i think we should continue to explore that and continue to evaluate it um one to just understand whether or not it happens and then two if it does you know is there some mechanism that we can look at and uh, you know we we've done some studies looking at practices like mediumship you know, where, where people are presumably getting in touch with uh, the spirits of the dead. And, um, and we find very distinct changes going on in the brain. Um, one of the areas that seems to be particularly affected is the frontal lobe. Um, so right behind the forehead, this is an area that in these practices actually starts to quiet down. Now, our frontal lobe normally kind of helps us to 
pay attention to the world and to kind of keep all of the ways in which we think in order. And so maybe when that shuts down, it kind of opens us up to being able to perceive the world in different ways. Whether those ways are accurate or not, again, is is still another question. But but it is something that is theoretically testable, and and uh, I would certainly encourage people to explore that more and more. And since I was reading the Russian version of your book, I may misname some of the things. Can you please explain how the specter of consciousness works? Mm. How you you see it from the scientific point, and what actually is happening at each of these levels? in our brain. Right. Well, so, you know, in, in, in the How Enlightenment uh, Changes Your Brain book, we did talk about different levels of consciousness and uh, and how they might be related to different brain processes, uh, going all the way from the very rudimentary aspect of how we interact with the world. And to some degree, uh, as you mentioned earlier on in the introduction, you know, how animals interact with the world. So we, we take in sensory information and we see what's going on and we react and we go towards things that are good, like food. We avoid things that are bad, like, uh, you know, a, a predator or, or a cliff or something like that. And so we do have some very basic ways in which we respond to the world. We have instinctual ways in which we respond to the world. And then ultimately, as we kind of develop more and more complex brains and as animals um, start to be able to think more and more about the world, we get to a level of kind of actual personal awareness, not just that, that the, you know, it's cold out, but I'm cold. And, uh, and, and so I need to put something warm on or something like that. Uh, and, and so this, this be ability to reflect on ourselves uh, is a very fundamental part of human awareness. And in fact, you know, we even went back and forth in our own way of looking at this to try to decide, should we call it consciousness? Um, should we call it awareness? Uh, on one hand, those terms are used uh, often in an overlapping kind of way. I mean, awareness tends to be, again, awareness of the world around us. Um, consciousness usually a little bit more specifically refers to kind of self-awareness, the awareness of who we are as individuals. Um, but uh, certainly the notion of, of this consciousness or this awareness um, might be, you know, even far greater than what we tip, you know, uh, uh, the way to look at it in the kind of current cognitive neuroscience perspective is that our brain creates consciousness. But if you do look at this from other perspectives, like a Buddhist or a Hindu perspective, consciousness creates our brain. And so it kind of flips things around completely. Now, which, which way is correct and which way, which uh, idea is incorrect? Difficult to really know for sure. It's difficult to know if our brain is creating the consciousness or receiving the consciousness or processing the consciousness. And again, this is part of where I think the study uh, of neurotheology may help us out because we can look at individuals. You were talking about certain enlightened masters who are able to control their consciousness in ways that most people are not. And if we can study that, we might be able to say, oh, okay, you know, well, they have a different frontal lobe or they have a different, you know, some other structure in their brain that allows them to do that uh, in different kinds of ways. But, um, but that's, you know, and, and then ultimately we get up to these kind of, uh, you know, more um, spiritual or even mystical states of consciousness where we look at the world in a way and experience the world in a way that um, uh, that 
you know, most people don't. And, and in those, those individuals, they often, you know, that's where they start to become that kind of enlightened individual and, uh, and to look at the world in fundamentally new ways that really even go beyond what science can arguably say about the world, because science is looking at the physical world and these mystical perspectives seem to look at the world, not only scientifically, but kind of what's behind all of that. And, uh, and, and again, uh, you know, to me, that's part of where neurotheology comes in to help us understand all of the different ways in which we experience the world help us to understand how they're related to each other so that we can try to answer that, that ultimate question about what is the nature of reality. Do you think that people in different areas of the world have uh, or can be on different levels of this consciousness? For instance, people in the West have more time, more spare time, and actually more, more resources to reflect on what is happening with them because they don't really fight for the food or for the worms for survival, basically, than people in other underdeveloped areas inflicted by war and, I mean, other circumstances. Do you feel that it's also influenced by the environment? I think there's certainly an environmental influence in terms of what, a, you know, is a person's... Uh, mind kind of free enough to be able to explore certain things. I think that that can be helpful. But, um, but you know, certainly one goes back historically even. I mean, it, it is often some of the, the true spiritual leaders of the world who have emerged out of areas that have a great deal of chaos and and conflict and so forth. Um, so sometimes it, there's that's part of what helps people get there. Uh, other times, uh, you know, the more you have the freedom that you don't have to worry about where you're going to get your next meal, um, you don't have to worry about walking down the street and getting killed, then, you know, those individuals can start to reflect more and more on creative processes, on spiritual processes. Uh, so it, it really can go both ways. Um, and, and in fact, again, that, that's kind of an interesting neurotheological question, which is what takes people, you know, in these different directions. Why is it that you could go to some, you know, slum uh, in India and uh, where people are starving and in horrible conditions and there's one of them that becomes, you know, an enlightened master. Well, why that one? You know, why that individual? What was going on that allowed that person to rise up out of that that uh, horrific uh, period, you know, and, and that time and place and do something different than everybody else who was there? And again, I mean, sometimes it, it is the the difficulty and the challenges and the and the strife that we that we suffer that ultimately allows that person and their brain to kind of bring them into that new way of thinking about things. They, they look at what suffering is like with Buddha or, or they look, you know, you think about like a mother Teresa or something like that, that kind of says, no, I, I got to be immersed in that suffering in order to, to achieve my true kind of spiritual understanding. So it, it can kind of go both ways. It's uh, going back to what we were talking about earlier. I mean, there is no one way to do it. And, uh, but, but certainly it can be, a great hindrance to certain people. I mean, I, I feel very fortunate. I, I've grown up in, a, in an environment that allowed me a lot of freedom. And I think that that's what allowed me to kind of question things and, and, and work towards this infinite doubt. I, I, was, I, was, I was okay with that experience. Uh, whereas other people, uh, if there's a great deal of uncertainty just in, in living, um, they may not feel comfortable even going down that kind of a path. To me, one of the really exciting things that came out of the, the survey that we did of people's spiritual experiences is that, that there doesn't seem to be, you know, one, there doesn't seem to be one path, that there could be many different ways in which people can go. And two, 
it's something that that can happen to anyone. You know, you don't have to be a, a monk that's sitting off on a mountain somewhere. Um, you know, you don't have to be a deeply religious individual. Uh, it can it can happen to those individuals, but it can happen to I mean, everyone has the opportunity to get to this experience. And that to me was very exciting. I mean, you know, one of my favorite examples, which is in the book, is is the guy who's just driving down the street, you know, driving his truck down the street and suddenly like sees everything completely differently. So, um, you know, it, it, it there isn't just a one way to do it. And, and it is, seems to be something that irrespective of where you are, who you are, your age, gender, socioeconomic status, you know, it's, it's a matter of finding that perspective. And in fact, my old Hindu uh, professor in college, uh, you know, one of the things that always struck me a lot that he talked about is that, you know, you can be enlightened and, and, and you know, be a garbage man or, you, you know, you don't have to be this great spiritual person. It's a matter of how you embrace and engage life. And it doesn't matter what you do. Um, as long as you're doing it to the fullest experience that you can and that you understand who you are and you, 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 you have that, that comfort in knowing how the world works and how you engage it, uh, it doesn't matter what you do, um, so matter as how you do it. What was the youngest age of the person who reported about those little or big enlightenments? I, you know, in our survey, I think the youngest age was around uh, the youngest age that somebody was in was probably in their kind of middle teenage years, like around 14, 15. Um, but interestingly, you know, there there are experiences that, that children have, you know, even when they're three, four, five years old. There's some fascinating examples of people who have had near death experiences at those early ages and, you know, really transforms who they are and in, in terms of how they think about the world. Uh, so uh, it does seem to be able to occur uh, in every age um, and in people who are younger, older. Probably it's a little bit more likely in that kind of teenage to early adult age because that's when your brain is, you know, everything's still changing and, and things are coming online. I mean, as opposed to once you're about 35, 40 years old, where your brain itself doesn't change all that much on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, but again, you know, I mean, it can happen to anyone. It can happen when you're 80 years old. It can happen when you're eight years old. And uh, and again, that to me is a very exciting piece of what neurotheology would look at. In fact, uh, my wife and I um, wrote uh, several articles on spiritual development going from essentially birth through through death and looked at how our brain develops and how that's related to different spiritual experiences and beliefs and matches up very well you know uh, when you're when you're in your childhood years between about uh, 4 and 10 um, your brain has the highest activity levels uh, that you have throughout your entire life and it also has the sort of the greatest connectivity between different nerve cells and and so forth and and part of what that means is is that we can kind of think about the world in some very interesting and strange ways, which is part of what children often do. You know, they think about God in very weird ways and, you know, to us seems weird, but to them it makes perfect sense. Um, so there's this whole sort of uh, developmental process. Then as you get into your early adulthood, um, those connections have been cut back, but you're still developing some of the areas of your brain. And that's when a lot of your sort of formal ideas that you're now going to take with you through the rest of your life become a part of who you are. And that is when a lot of these experiences start to occur. Uh, but then as people get older, as we talked about earlier, um, sometimes as different brain areas start to shut down or there's injuries or whatever, 
um, that can also predispose people to have very profound experiences as well. So uh, there, again, there, there's, there's many different ways in which these experiences can happen throughout a person's lifetime. When, when you talk about these neuroconnections that uh, happen in the mind, is it something that can be tracked uh, scientifically? I mean, is it something that you basically can see when you scan? Well, we see certain changes in the brain that are so you know that are associated with practices like meditation. Um, we've done some studies looking at different belief processes, how people process different. Uh, we did a study looking at religious symbols and how different visual symbols affect the brain. So, you know, on one hand, yes, you can see different areas of the brain. We know that, uh, for example, that if the parietal lobe shuts, starts to shut down, that that tends to be associated with people losing that sense of self, for example. Um, you know, not as good at looking at, you know, specific uh, beliefs. You know, like if somebody says, think about God, um, you know, we, we can't find the neuron that lights up that's the God neuron per se, although again, maybe there, there often isn't. It's sort of a network of structures and, and neurons that are going on. Part of what also I think is kind of a an interesting part of this, and, and I always kind of challenge my students uh, when, I, when I teach them about brain function and brain imaging, is that when, when you think about the brain itself, you know, you've got, you've got the neurons, and when they fire, so to speak, there's, they, they depolarize. And so sodium and potassium go rushing in and out of the cell. Um, you have different ions that are, that are moving. You have electrical signals that are transmitting back and forth. You have the release of different neurotransmitters, serotonin and dopamine. You have blood flow that comes in. Um, you have metabolic activity that comes in. So, you know, where in all of that is the actual thought? that you have, you know, where in all of that is consciousness. And we don't have an answer to that. We don't know, is it, you know, do, does every neuron have consciousness? And then you put them all together and we have kind of a, a larger consciousness. Uh, is it possible that individual neurons don't have consciousness, but if you bring together thousands of them, they do? And if so, is it all of the connections themselves that lead to that consciousness? Is it the electrical activity, the, the you know, the serotonin and dopamine chemicals in the brain? We, we really, you know, we really don't have an answer to your question about how and where do thoughts actually arise. And that's also part of what leads down the path of saying, well, you know, then is the brain really creating these thoughts or is it merely you know, a receptacle for them, receiving them in some way, and that the thoughts are, you know, out there in the world and that uh, we're just interpreting those different signals in a way that makes some kind of sense to us and gives us some kind of coherent picture of the world around us. So maybe we're kind of robots and all this happens somewhere else where... Very possible. Although, you know, again, like, I mean, the one thing... Our brain is like a display, like a processor. Right. Now, again, I mean, you know, the one thing that is somewhat unique is, is this awareness piece. Um, you know, that a computer just does its processing. It doesn't know that it's doing mathematics. Uh, when I when we're doing mathematics, we know we're doing mathematics. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, how do we what's the difference? Um, but then again, I mean, there's people who are in the field of artificial intelligence, another uh, tangentially related field, but but may have some relevance in all of these discussions about, you know, can we ultimately create a computer that has consciousness? And how would we know? I mean, how do I know you have consciousness? I only know that because you tell me you have it. I have a way of measuring that consciousness within you. And similarly, I don't know how, you know, even if I ask a computer, are you conscious? And it says, yes. 
how do I know that it's really conscious or it's just been programmed to say yes? But then if I ask you if you're conscious, uh, how do I know that you're really conscious when you say yes or somehow you've been programmed to say yes when you ask that question? <laughs> yeah, that's a kind of a coin. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's not really related to what you wrote about, but I want to, <laughs> to ask you as a doctor and as someone who is learning the brain, is it a myth that... Uh, when the neurons die, they cannot be sort of, I don't know, born or created or made again by the brain. For example, we have this myth in Russia, maybe it's everywhere, that when people are too nervous all the time, the neurons or something is definitely dying in the brain. And uh, then the question is, can it be changed? Can it change in the future? Once something has died, died. Um, we don't have a way of bringing that back. Uh, on the other hand, um, you know, when the brain is, is injured, um, there are neurons that, um, that are, you know, kind of affected by that injury, but they can recover their function. Uh, and, and of course, sometimes um, you can grow and develop new neurons that, um, uh, or new neural connections that allow a brain to respond to an injury like a stroke. So when somebody has an initial stroke, they may not be able to talk, but if you train them enough, then they can recover the ability to speak. Now, so what's going on? You know, are they recovering their ability to speak because a lot of the neurons didn't actually die, they just weren't functioning in that particular moment, and then as time has gone on, they recover their blood flow and then they ultimately recover their ability to function. Sure, that's part of it. Uh, but also we know that, that certain parts of the brain can take over for areas that are injured. And so people can develop and learn and, uh, and, and, and grow, you know, new ways of, of processing that information, bypassing the areas that have been destroyed by whatever the process is, like a stroke. So it's, it's a little bit of both. I mean, but my understanding generally is, is that if a neuron dies, um, then that neuron cannot be brought back. But um, but whether or not other neurons can take over for it, and again, that implies that it has fully, completely died, as opposed to a neuron that's just been kind of stunned or you know isn't working properly right now, but can recover its function ultimately. A little bit like a muscle, you know. I mean, if you uh, if uh, if you pull your muscle and you rest it a little bit, then in a week or two you can use it again completely normally. Um, if I take a knife and I completely cut the muscle, it's probably never going to be able to use, be used again, but on the other hand, maybe you can use other muscles that are around it that can help support it and, and, and allow you to use that particular air, you know, that limb or that leg or whatever uh, in a relatively normal way, even though you're not using the same muscle that you have truly, you know, completely destroyed. So when you t say that the new neuroconnection gets created, gets made, is it something that you can actually see under the microscope, or is it a matter of saying this that there is a new neuroconnection? Right. Uh, well, it's it's both. Um, you know, so we know that that when people um, uh, have a stroke, for example, and they start to recover function, that we can see you know more blood flow, more activity, more neurotransmitters going on in areas that were initially not functioning or not functioning very well. They haven't done this so much with, with human studies because 
to only to look under the microscope, you need the actual tissue, but they've certainly done a lot of animal studies that do show um, that uh, neurons can grow and, and develop new connections and can create many new connections. In fact, I mean, interestingly, and this goes back a little bit to one of your earlier questions about environment, um, you know, animal studies have shown that animals that are raised in very enriching environments, very uh, comforting, very, uh, you know, with a lot of stimuli, um, will have lots of neural connections, whereas those animals that are raised in, you know, a very, uh, you know, a very solitary kind of environment with very few stimuli will have many fewer connections. Um, they'll have very few connections compared to an animal that's brought up in a, in a very enriched environment. And human beings are, are somewhat similar, too. I mean, obviously, if you you know, go to school and you have great teachers and they teach you all about lots of different things, then your brain develops a lot of different neural connections and you kind of optimize your intelligence. And if you uh, are not taught well and, and you're, you know, you're ridiculed and, and you're given a lot of very, you know, you're, you're raised in it by very bad parents and, and, you know, basically locked in your room, then you're not going to be able to use your brain very well and your brain isn't going to have those neural connections. I have uh, about three more questions okay one of them is about uh, animals since the book was written about the enlightenment have there been any other experiments or surveys made with animals to discover how conscious they can be um you know i i don't know i don't know if i would say that there are you know completely new studies, but certainly there have been some fascinating studies that have looked at animals and tried to explore uh, the nature of consciousness in animals and what they're aware of. Um, we know, for example, that certain um, higher primates uh, like monkeys and so forth and, and uh, orangutans, you know, when, when you put them in front of a mirror, they recognize themselves in the mirror. If you put like a mark on their head, they don't reach for it. They, they reach back to themselves to, to see that there's something uh, you know, going on there. Uh, dolphins also uh, will spend more time looking at a mirror if you put marks on them than if they if they don't. And um, and so you know there is some some sense that animals uh, certainly have emotions um, that they uh, have a variety of behaviors that are similar to human beings, especially in terms of uh, reconciling differences when there's a fight and so forth. They can kind of make up, so to speak, and. Um, and they can forgive and they can love and they can feel different emotions um, to the extent that they have awareness. Obviously, the main problem is, is that there's a language barrier. So we have no way of asking them what they're really thinking. Um, and we can only look at what their behaviors are and, and what they seem to be doing and try to decide whether or not that's similar or dissimilar to what we do as human beings. But um, but yeah, I mean, you know, it, it certainly looks like uh, I mean, a lot of animals um you know, especially primates and dolphins have brains that are very similar to human beings. They have frontal lobes, temporal lobes, parietal lobes. Um, they do very similar kinds of things. And so, um, you know, it, it seems like it would not be a, a huge stretch to say that they have um, at least some rudimentary levels of the kinds of awareness and consciousness that human beings have. But to what extent and, you know, do they have something, do they believe things spiritually or not? I Hard to know for sure, but um, uh, but something that's certainly worthy of exploration. I wanted to ask you about the weight, like kgs and grams. When people meditate or when enlightenment is happening, can you physically measure 
um, the difference between the two brains, like the brain that hasn't experienced that or the brain that does experience that? Well, we're getting there. Um, you know, people have certainly done studies that have looked at individuals who have done meditation-based practices for many, many years versus those who have not. And there are differences in their brain. Um, people who meditate for long periods of time have have larger frontal lobes. Um, we found changes in a structure called the thalamus, which is a very central structure that regulates our sensory information and helps different parts of our brain to connect with each other. Um, again, those people who've been doing these practices for long periods of time uh, will have alterations in the activity levels in the thalamus, which are distinguished from those people who have not. Now, the problem with the actual study of enlightenment is, is that we never really know when it's going to happen. And so no one's done that definitive study where we've, you know, scanned a thousand people and then waited 20 years to see who got enlightened and who didn't, and then rescan them and see where the differences are. Um, so, you know, because part of the problem is that we don't know uh, who's going to be enlightened and we don't know when they might be enlightened. And so, you know, we, we did a study of people going through a spiritual retreat program with the hope that we would capture some very intense experiences. And I think we did. Um, and it showed changes not only in brain activity patterns, but also in terms of the dopamine levels in their brain, um, and the sensitivity to dopamine. So, um, you know, there, there are differences, but we're still trying to iron out exactly what they are and what they mean and how, you know, how well we can use that information to truly differentiate who is and who isn't, who has not had that kind of an experience. Of course, you also have kind of the larger picture problem of who determines who is enlightened versus, you know, I mean, uh, do we rely on the individual to say that they are? Do we need masters who can evaluate them and say, yes, that person is, that person isn't? Um, there's some really fascinating questions that come up about how do we even know who is enlightened in the first place? And then how do we use that information to inform us about what we're seeing on the brain scans? In your book, you share that you actually scanned yourself when you had certain experiences. Mm. I wanted to ask you, do you scan yourself regularly to notice <laughs> the differences in your brain activity and what is happening? How do you research yourself? How do you survey yourself? Well, I, you know, so uh, a lot of times I, I, I am a subject in my own studies. Uh, I always find that that's helpful to sort of see what's going on and what people are feeling. Um, the scan that you mentioned, I mean, we, uh, I went into the scanner, we were developing some stuff and I said, well, let me, you know, let me try my contemplation. Let me try the contemplative process of kind of resting within that infinite doubt, so to speak. And uh, and see you know what what happens in my brain relative to when my brain is just sitting there doing nothing and um, similar to other types of practices I think that there was uh, a decrease of activity in that parietal lobe um, so you know yes there's uh, in my brain at least there were certain things that seemed similar but as we have also learned you know there are so many unique patterns that, you know, we, we've studied people in Christian prayer and Islamic prayer and Jewish prayer and Buddhist and Hindu and so forth. Um, they are all unique in the sense that they all have certain unique patterns to them. And, uh, and, 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 but by the same token, that doesn't make them better or worse. It just makes them, it just tells you what's going on in that person when they engage the experience in a certain kind of way. And, uh, and so for me personally, you know, it was a, it was interesting to see that there was something going on in my brain, but um, 
but again, I, you know, even even for me, I think it'd be helpful to continue to come back and and keep looking at it or to look at other other aspects of my thought processes that uh, I engage in and to see, uh, you know, what areas of my brain are being used when I when I get those feelings and, and have those different kinds of experiences and and where the similarities and the dissimilarities are. I mean, I hope that, you know, part of what I've, I, I feel like neurotheology has taught me is is a great sense of compassion and understanding for everyone's belief system because uh, each person really, you know, all of us have a brain that's kind of looking out at the universe and trying to make some sense out of what is essentially an infinite universe uh, with a very finite brain. And so it should not be a surprise to anyone that we come up with different conclusions and different ideas and different religious traditions. And that even within a tradition that, uh, you know, everybody feels things a little bit differently. Um, so I think, you know, part of what it hopefully provides is this notion of, of uh, a greater sense of understanding and compassion towards other people and, and hopefully a way of looking at these different perspectives as a way of helping all of us try to, to put together what the nature of reality ultimately is. I think somehow it has to help us understand what each of these perspectives uh, ultimately are and what they bring. And, uh, and, and you know, in the world today with, uh, with so much divisiveness, um, I, I think being able to say something where like, we can help people to see that other side and help see people see the different ideas and the different beliefs and help them to be open to that could hopefully be, you know, helpful. I mean, I'm a very idealistic guy, so I hope that, uh, you know, we, we this will help uh, move humanity itself as a whole towards a new enlightenment. But whether we get there or not, um, you know, we'll, time will tell. It was great to have you on the show. <laughs> well, thank you. It was a lot of fun. Great questions. And, and there's millions more. There's millions more questions. So uh, we just got to all keep going. Live hackers, did you enjoy this episode? If you did, please rate us and leave your review on iTunes. Has any of the episodes that you have already heard from us touched you or led you to some new conclusions, ideas, resolutions? I'll be happy to hear about that. You can Contact us via Happiness Patterns on Instagram or you can send an email to info at happinesspatterns.com We're happy to hear from you and I promise that we'll answer you as well. Also, we have recorded the next episode. Next week we talk to Dr. Iron Kerner who has sold more than 300,000 copies of his New York Times bestseller, She Comes First. We talk about sexuality and we touch different aspects of one of the most important parts of our life. So this episode comes next Saturday and you'll hear from us then. Bye bye.